passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It's the same way with us. It's a meritocracy. So if you're at the top of the card, you know, hey, maybe you have a bigger dressing room than the person at the bottom of the card. But everyone has the same opportunity to earn their way there. from just nowhere on the card and no desire to have me and no priority and that's not a knock on anybody and to go out in the freaking wilderness and try everything I could to make some noise and change our business and pro wrestling and sports entertainment whatever the F you want to call it and just oh I felt like they appreciated it and I appreciated them looking to sell over 100,000 seats or for capacity of over 100,000 on Saturday and on Sunday without jinxing it we're on track to do it ladies and gentlemen we are pleased to announce tonight's attendance here at AT AT&T Stadium for Wrestlemania Saturday 77,890 Everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting live and on demand from Buffalo, New York, where today is Sunday. WrestleMania Sunday. It's not just any Sunday. Yesterday was WrestleMania Saturday. The day before that was WrestleMania SmackDown. Today is Sunday, April the 3rd, 2022. Uh, and Chris Gullo is away. He is in uh, in Dallas. He is in Arlington, he is, I think, a, I think, attending WrestleMania tonight. I am joined instead by Jesse Collins, who uh, writes for Voices of Wrestling, writes for Wrestling Inc. Am I getting all that right, Jesse? Yes, so far. The two publications that I write for. Yes. But you're also a real-life uh, journalist, are you? Yes, the two publications I write uh, about wrestling for. I, have, I do not foray into it. Yes. In my juke job as a real journalist and not a fake pro wrestling journalist. Right. Where, where are you uh, joining us from today? Uh, I am in my apartment in East Arlington, Massachusetts, about five miles outside Boston. Okay. Have you, uh, have you attended Beyond Wrestling events before? I did go to one of their shows in Worcester. You were not there. Okay. Was that an uncharted territory? Oh, I, I Honestly, I can't remember. Was was that, what is that? The White Eagle... White Eagle? Paul? Something like that? Anyway. Um, I don't know. Layla Hirsch was on the card. Yes, it was at White Eagle. It was at, it was at White Eagle. It was where they taped out of Worcester. Right. Well, anyway, today we are going to talk about WrestleMania attendance, Nick Khan's 
media tour. He did at least two media appearances. Um, so I guess we'll start with what's probably on everybody's mind the most who's tuning in right now is WrestleMania attendance. The, uh, the vaunted subject in, in all of wrestling business, uh, one of the most controversial subjects that there is. Um, so we are here in AT&T stadium, which we know has a capacity of for football around a hundred thousand people. Um, W did WrestleMania at AT&T stadium in 2016. They announced 101,763. That number is burned into my brain. Uh, but then the Arlington police told me the turnstile count was 80,709. Now, maybe that didn't include people in suites. I don't know how many people are watching WrestleMania from suites as opposed to a Dallas Cowboys game. Um, but this event, in the weeks leading up, we saw this is this is an earlier report that I'm going to show on the screen for night one and night two. Uh, we saw 55, 56,000. Uh, last count from WrestleTix for Saturday, tickets distributed, which should include paid and comps, wouldn't include suites. Definitely doesn't include ushers and ticket takers and things of that nature. Uh, night one, tickets distributed, according to WrestleTix. WrestleTix analyzing the ticketing map, in this case from SeatGeek, 65,719. 65,719. Uh, WWE announced, right uh, at, um, I think, before before the Austin match, or maybe maybe even before that, 77,899 is their announced attendance. So that's about 20% higher, I think, than 65,717. Um, so that's the discrepancy. Um, there could be up to 12,000 people in suites because there's over 300 suites that could contain 12 to 35 guests in, in those suites. Um, I would imagine suites are uh, are not at full capacity for a WrestleMania as as they as much as they would be for a, say a Dallas Cowboys game. I I don't know what what the situation is in AT&T Stadium, but in a lot of cases suites are bought for an entire year of events. So all the events for that venue for say an entire year you get access to if you have that that suite re reserved. I think you can also reserve suites individually for individual events. I did find some, you know, it was possible to reserve uh, for WrestleMania earlier in the day on Saturday. Uh, so I think we can say with confidence that the suites were not like at full capacity with 12,000 people in them. Uh, but that this number, uh, if it's not merely for entertainment purposes only, uh, includes ushers and ticket takers and all of that. And it's, as Vince McMahon said about the 2016 WrestleMania in the same venue, it wasn't. 77,899 paid. The paid number is probably much closer to and and slightly under the WrestleTix number, 65,719. But any thoughts that you might have on that, Jesse? So without getting into too many conversations about like staging and how many seats you can put on the field and that kind of aspect of what the actual capacity of the building is, AT&T Stadium my understanding of it is that when it was first constructed, it was constructed in a way that it can easily seat over 100,000 people for a football game or other events. And after like a few years of that, or maybe like it was just the first couple of seasons, 
they basically got rid of that kind of capacity. I think they built more suites. And now the capacity for the NFL is around 80,000, which is not which is one of the larger NFL stadiums, but is not the largest NFL stadium. Lambeau Field is, can seat more. I think MetLife in New York City can, uh, or East Rutherford can seat more. So there's a, like, I guess, I don't think like the Dallas Stadium really has a capacity over 100,000 anymore. Okay. Uh, and it, I don't think it had it at WrestleMania 32 either, but that was at least closer to when it had it. I might be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure that is what happened was they basically did it as a gimmick to, you know, have the highest attended NFL game ever, uh, right. have highest attended NBA all-star game ever, which I think is like the North American indoor attendance record. I don't even think they can seat a hundred thousand anymore. So you, you can throw that number right out. Um, when it comes to the I fixed surpri- seating. Yeah. yeah. I was surprised that they announced 77,000. I just assumed they were going to announce like 102,000 or whatever would be the higher number. Mm-hmm. Um, that would break the record that they had previously set because that's, like when they return to a new a building that they used to they had previously run a WrestleMania in, they always announce a bigger number than what they announced previously. But that was with um one event. You can see with with there being two events, you know, you're increasing the volume, and um, you know, you're you're doing two events over two days. In the end, I mean, they'll day two is looking at looking like what what did I have up here at at last count. 57,000 tickets distributed, which would come out to over 122,000 tickets distributed. So a lot more than whatever number you want to believe, whether it's 101,763, including ushers and ticket takers and all of that, or whether you want to believe, you know, the 80,709 that the, uh, that the Arlington police department said, and we can look at what, um, the key performance indicators indicate based on the averages that they do report that W itself reports based on average attendance with WrestleMania in that quarter and without WrestleMania in that quarter, we can do some math and determine a range within which the, att- the paid attendance paid attendance must have landed. So what we got for WrestleMania 32 into 2016 was the median of that range, give or take a few thousand, is 79,800. So that's what it was looking like uh, in that year. Um, but uh, I think we can... Go to the first comment from Nick Khan from his interview uh, on The Town with Matt Bellany, where he uh, he mentions uh, this is this is um, an interview that was happening on Monday, I believe, because they're referring to the Oscars, which happened last night, Nick says, which was Sunday, right? If, I, if my memory serves me correct. So mm-hmm. he's speaking on Monday and he's saying that. Uh, WrestleMania is on track to do 100,000 both days. So we'll listen to that clip now. So this is the first time uh, we're doing two nights of WrestleMania full capacity. So Saturday, this Saturday, April 2nd, and Sunday, April 3rd from AT&T Stadium in Dallas on Peacock in the U.S. Um, We think we have action-packed cards on both nights. We're looking to sell over 100,000 seats or for capacity of over 100,000 on Saturday and on Sunday. Without jinxing it, we're on track to do it. And I struggle to understand what he might have been getting at there. Um, we're on track to sell 100,000 on each day. Um, I, I even, you know, tr- trying to give him the benefit of the doubt that maybe he meant 100,000 combined over both days. I mean, clearly, tickets distributed are, are well over 100,000, not only by Monday, but sort of weeks in advance. We saw that through WrestleTix, um, that it was well over 100,000 for at least a couple weeks there. Um, so 
I, I can't imagine what information he was basing uh, that statement on. Any guesses? Well, this is why I was surprised they announced the 77,000 number because as this was almost like a hint of what they were going to announce, right? Because mm -hmm. you and I heard that and we were both like, well, I really don't think they're going to get 100,000 people on each night because right. we, we, we were aware of what the ticket sales were, you know, six days or, or, or five days before WrestleMania. And so I figured, oh, okay, this is just, you know, typical WWE lying up where they're going to say they're going to announce 102,000 on each night um, because that's the, that's the record for them and they're going to set the record for their highest attended event. Um, but the specific, you're, you're right about like the specific nature of we're on track to do it would make it seem like maybe he believed that they were going to get uh, 40,000, 50,000 walk-ups uh, on Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. Uh, you know, as we mentioned, the stadium wasn't set up for that many people. So it was just, you know, it, it wasn't surprising to me that he said it, but I did think he was very, the specific nature of it made it seem very obvious when you, he could have easily just been like, yeah, we're going to do a hundred thousand people this weekend. Yeah. Um, and that wouldn't be a lie. Like you said, they, they are doing over well over a hundred thousand people. They could, could have said, we're going to do 120,000 people this weekend because they right. probably are. Um, right. And, and so he was very specific in pointing out the 100,000 each night, which, again, is why I was surprised they they only, you know, exaggerated to 77,000. Yeah. And uh, I, something else we could do here while, while we're dwelling on WrestleMania attendance is they they didn't put out a press release last night. Um, they did put out a press release on WrestleMania Saturday, year prior. Uh, for WrestleMania last year, with the limited capacity in Tampa, they didn't announce... Uh, a gate. Um, so do I have, I, I don't think I have it here, do I? But I have the attendance here. So we, we from in, in Tampa, through the Tampa Sports Authority, through an information request, uh, we got, we ended up getting the gate. We ended up getting all these, we ended up get, getting basically the, the Ticketmaster audits. So, so I, so we can tell you what's on the screen here, what the night one and night two paid attendance, total attendance, tickets distributed and all that were for, for that limited capacity WrestleMania. Um, but what we, and we ended up getting the gate too. Um, so my point is they haven't put out a press release yet. Maybe they still will for what the gate was last night or what maybe they will after the night is over tonight say, this is, this is the total amount of revenue that we drew, um, the biggest WrestleMania ever. And the biggest pro wrestling event ever is WrestleMania 32 in Arlington in AT&T stadium with a $17.3 million live gate. Of course, that's one event. This will exceed that in total between two nights, but clearly on over, over one night, unless ticket prices are so much higher than they were before, that's not happening. Um, something we could speculate about here is what, what's the average ticket price? And we can, let's say, let's say the paid attendance is we you know tickets distributed is this number, 65,719. So if paid attendance is, and I don't think they would be collecting any revenues from suites, right? But it's probably because at least most of the suite attendees, they are already paid for. That's not additional revenue going to the venue or to the event if you're going into a suite, I think. But but the tickets obviously are, right? So let's say you know, if we exclude comps out of that, let's say 95% of that is paid. That brings us to four night one, 62,400. So now to determine the gate, we have to ask what's the average ticket price. 
Do you have any sense, Jesse, of what the average ticket price might be for WrestleMania? I don't. I assume it's really high. So WrestleMania in the past, um, if we merely divide what, what their live gate disclosure is by what the, what the paid attendance seems to be, it gets up to like $200 a ticket. Um, the, the pricing appears to be very dynamic on for this event because it's through SeatGeek. But let's say the the ticket price was something like $200 and $215 or something like that. So if I just multiply what I just estimated for the paid attendance by about 215, that would get to $13 million in, for a live gate. And if we multiply that, you know, roughly by two, I think night two is going to be a little lower, but that gets to about $25 million for a live gate, which, you know, even adjusted for inflation, um, that's, uh, that's a lot. That's uh, both of those nights are going to be among the biggest pro wrestling live gates ever adjusted for inflation. I mean, all, all of the biggest events, all the biggest live gates adjusted for inflation at this point, I, I believe are, you know, the last few WrestleManias before the pandemic. So this will be lower than those, those few probably. Um, but, uh, but still even on these separate nights among probably, let's say the top 10 uh, live gates in pro wrestling history. Um, not counting, not counting uh, events in Riyadh and Jeddah, which are paid shows up front by the Saudi government to the tune of fifty million dollars. But right, so the, the the combined estimated gate of this show isn't even half is is basically half, half of what one of the the crown yes. jewel half of, half uh, of a Saudi event here, half of a Saudi yeah. event. Um, um, I want to ask you two things about this. The first, as you point out, with that twenty six million dollar figure. Just like how Raw is never going to be two hours again, I don't think WrestleMania is ever going to be one night again. If anything, it's going to go to three nights, right? Does that seem outside the realm of possibility at this point? I think there's a lot more flexibility here uh, with WrestleMania than there would be with Raw, right? Because it's it's one it's one piece, right? They can. It's easier for me to justify. I, I generally agree with you that they're they're just going to see it as, hey, this is a way that we can expand this event and make make more revenue, uh, more content for Peacock and our other W Network uh, partners. Um, but I think it's Raw is more immovable because we've written all these contracts. For instance, with NBC Universal, five year contract, whatever the next one is, that that guarantees them, you know, you're probably agreeing to three hours in the contract um, for a number of years. Whereas WrestleMania, it's kind of year year to year. I know they've already said next year in Inglewood, California, they're going to do a two-day event again. Um, But it's still kind of year to year. What are they going to do the following year? Probably two nights. But they could could more easily change that if they decided for whatever reason, you know, maybe this is sort of diluting our brand and we want to make it one very special night again. Uh, That's, there's just fewer moving parts to make that happen. But, but generally I agree with you. This is, this is a, this is a company that showed its tendency is to just produce more content, monetize more of it, make more money. And if that dilutes the brand or makes, make, makes this uh, too much for some people that, well, that's secondary. Well, you mentioned like how like the TV contracts make it inflexible. It's also possible that when you sign your deal with Peacock or you sign your next contract with a streaming partner, whether that's Peacock or maybe someone else, it's possible that, hey, WrestleMania's two nights is in that contract. Because I'm sure they're happy that they're getting two nights of WrestleMania level viewership or whatever, um, as opposed to one. 
Mm-hmm. And I look at the schedule for this year, right? This year for WWE is kind of an experiment in some ways on how many travel shows that they can they produce and how many stadium shows that they can run. We've already seen the Royal the Royal Rumble was in a stadium this year, right? It yes, was. it was in the St. Louis. St. Louis, right. um, the, the, the old TWA dome. Yes. Um, but, you know, WrestleMania, obviously, is stadium this year. Money in the Bank is in a stadium this year. It's in Las Vegas. Um, SummerSlam is in Nashville at right. the uh, the Titan Stadium. I don't know what it's called. Um, you got the uh, the Millennium State. Oh, they haven't announced the Millennium Stadium show, but the, the Cardiff Wales Stadium show. Is, is that right, what's being not- speculated? Yeah, I, I, I fully expect W is going to run a stadium show in September, probably in the UK. And is, is that the rumor that it's in Cardiff? Yeah. I don't even know if it's called Lit- Millennium Stadium anymore. But the point is, they're running a lot of stadium shows. And I think it's almost like a test to see um, how many like tra- how, how, how many shows can they get a traveling fan base to go to each year. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're banking on 65,000 people in the Nashville, Tennessee area to go to SummerSlam. I think they're banking on people traveling to Nashville uh, yeah. in August to see that. And I wonder, once you're getting to that level, once you're relying on fans who are coming in probably for a weekend, not just one night, um, why not expand those shows to two nights? Could we get two-night Royal Rumble? We got two Royal Rumble matches. Why not do one on Saturday and one on Sunday? You, SummerSlam could be two nights. Money in the Bank could be two nights. You have two Money in the Bank matches. I don't rule any of that out because I feel like this <laughs> is the first step in trying to see how many people you can get to travel to shows. And once you have that, then you can do two nights. Cause that's what led to WrestleMania almost being two nights, which was a sense of that people were clearly coming in for the whole weekend. All of these different promotions were piggybacking on people who were arriving on Friday and Saturday and going to all these other shows. And WWE had the NXT show and kind of piggyback off it it's, itself as well. And so they said, you know, what? all these people are in town. Why not just expand to two nights? Because we'll give them two nights of WrestleMania and that will muscle out maybe some of the competition that's glumming onto our show. Um, and I think that if the, if the if they show that they can get this amount of fans to travel to all of their major shows, it wouldn't surprise me if all these shows became two nights. Yeah, I mean, that's the the, the case you make for Royal Rumble is is pretty compelling that you could just do one Royal Rumble on one, one, one day, another Royal Rumble on another day, um, provided that, uh, you know, a, a company led by Vince McMahon is willing to, you know, I guess guarantee that one of these events could be main evented by a women's uh, Royal Rumble. Um, so the, the St. Louis Royal Rumble and the Las Vegas SummerSlam, uh, in G- SummerSlam in August, St. Louis uh, Royal Rumble in January. I, I think that's the the two events that Nick Khan has said. You know, they they saw. I forget how he phrases it. That there were different people who went to different events. So essentially, these are traveling events that are for that are regional. Maybe maybe it was WrestleMania. Anyway, you you do all these stadium events and you put space them across the country, or even if you're going to do one in the UK across the globe, so that you're attracting traveling fans sort of regionally. Um, so I think that's what they're thinking there. Um, I do wonder to what extent, you know, if, if there was no pandemic uh, or maybe a year later, we'll see what happens. Is the, are, are, are these events not as well attended uh, because there's still some COVID hesitancy for, for when it comes to travel? Um, 
I guess like just speaking personally, that that was probably a factor for me. I would have more maybe more strongly considered going to Dallas if if not for like, well, it's there's still, you know, there's we're still getting over a pandemic here. Um, so I don't know. Do you do you think that's a factor? I think it'd be too dismissive to say that uh it's not a factor, right? I would think that, like I said, I, I mean I haven't really traveled since the pandemic, I haven't flown anywhere is what I'll, what I'll classify as real travel as. Um, and I definitely think there are people that are still kind of nervous about it. Perhaps the show being in Texas, people don't feel like regulations would be followed as closely. Um, whether that's true or untrue, I, I'm not going to say, but it's definitely a stereotype that would be out there that might affect some people. Um, so I definitely think the COVID is a reason. I'm curious to know though, do you think splitting it between two nights really has that big of an impact on the night to night attendance and the, the, the variation we're seeing between this WrestleMania and WrestleMania 32, right? If we believe 65,000 people were at night one and was 79,000 were at WrestleMania 32, 80,709. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think that splitting it between two nights has made it less attractive for some people to go? than if it was just the one night and that if this was one, a one night WrestleMania, they would be at 80,000. Or do you think that the product is maybe colder than it was at WrestleMania 32? The the attraction, not quite as big. Um, perhaps other factors like the pandemic still being uh, active is also a factor as well. But I was curious to know if you think like the two nights does kind of reduce um, artific- kind of like uh, artificially reduces the over the peak attendances for either night because there's two nights. I, I think the fact that night one and night two were almost so similar in attendance figures, and they're probably going to end up with a very similar amount, uh, a number for tickets distributed when it's all said and done. I, I think Sunday's going to be quite a bit lower by a few thousand, but we'll see. Right. But that's, that's not that big of a difference to me. Like okay. we're talking about a tw- almost like a, like a, like a 15,000 different point difference between. Uh, I didn't understand that. My phone thinks I'm talking to it. Sorry. <laughs> Well, good. No, I, um, I, I think I think like relative to 2016, I I think 2016 in some ways is a, is a is a peak in popularity for them. That that started roughly when the network launched 2014, 2015, 2016, and that's what I see in metrics like paid ticket sales annually over that time, merchandise uh-huh. sales annually over that time, um, web search annually over that time. It 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 travels up to 2016 and then it travels down and i think the product got colder over that time and frustration among some fans about the quality of the product from about 2017 onward uh grew over that time and allowed the opportunity for something like aw to be more possible um so now i i think part of it is is the content um part of it a small maybe small part of it is hesitancy about traveling to uh you know i haven't been on a on an airplane flight since since uh, before the pandemic either um part of it is traveling and part of it is uh, the quality of the product and part of it um maybe is you know sort of the, the dilution of doing two nights rather than one ultimately financially speaking if, you, if your job is to further monetize this product two nights it's 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 probably worth a, a bit of dilution for the greater revenue that you gain in the end um so let's run through go 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 ahead uh, yeah, no, I, no. I was basically just going to say that kind of what you what you said, which I think the product is colder. But I do think the two nights for people that are like veteran travelers that are veteran WrestleMania goers, I think the two nights can make it. It's 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 a lot more of an ask in some ways. I know 
Brian Alvarez talked about how, why he didn't go. And he said, as basically as bad as the one night was this, you know, nine hour wrestling show, it was kind of one day and you could kind of justify, okay, my whole day is just going to be this marathon day. When you get to two yeah. and it's two times you have to get to the arena, two times you have to sit in the arena for hours and hours and watch a lot of uh, commercials, presumably. Um, it just becomes a lot. It, I watched that becomes, Snickers commercial four times last night, at least, at least at, four times. At a minimum. What was it? Seamus bagpipes, she- both full of hot, hot air. Yes. <laughs> but you know, in, in this, in this arena, I have never been to this, this, this bill. Have you been to the, the Arlington, Texas no. stadium? No, I haven't either. My understanding is that there's no public transportation to get there. If you're staying in Dallas, you kind of got to, you know, take a taxi cab or maybe take a couple buses and then an Uber ride. It's not the easiest arena to get to. And so that can also be a challenge over two days. If you're like, all right, I'm staying, you know, a 30 minutes away and I'm going to need to find my way there to rent a car. All that stuff comes into play, I think, and maybe making this not as desirable to go to over two nights. And so people just stayed home. I don't know how big of a factor that is. I'm just kind of answered early. That's kind of what Brian Alvarez said, why he kind of prevented him from going to the show. And I think probably some other people felt the same way. It's also more expensive. It's like, okay, do I want to buy, you know, two nights worth of tickets at average price 225, which would be, right. you know, almost probably $500 right around that. That's an, you know, an additional expense that eh, maybe I don't want to do that. And I'll just, I don't think that, I don't think there's a lot of people just going to one night. There are clearly, but I kind of, yeah. I kind of don't think that there's just like one per people are just going to one night. I think that the two nights does kind of keep attendance down and artificially in some way. And, and I think what we're seeing as time goes on, sort of a bifurcation of, of the wrestling audiences more so where I think there's, there's more of a distinction. I think it's, we see it in the crowd reactions too, to the extent that we can still hear them. Um, there's a bifurcation between the, the WWE fans and, and the and the not AEW fans or whatever, non-WE wrestling fans who I think are just more checked out on WE or less willing to give WE a shot. And 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 clearly the people, the millions of people who are still willing to watch it on TV and uh, the tens of thousands of people who are still linked to uh, attend an event like this uh, who are still with them. Um, but there's that. Um, just to quickly run through the other attendances uh, for the weekend so far. Stand and Deliver with a 1 p.m. Eastern start. So that would be, what, noon local because they're in the central time zone. 4,366 at American Airlines Arena. Pretty low. Um, but that's the new NXT. And it's, uh, I guess, not a preferable uh, time slot. But you compare this to, like, NXT takeovers of the prior era where they were selling out basketball arenas like American Airlines Arena. That's exceptionally low. Um, but it's a different vision. And it's more developmental now than it is an indie super show. Um, stop me if you have any thoughts on this. Um, SmackDown and the Hall of Fame. One night, uh, WrestleTix, the previous number was also from WrestleTix. This from WrestleTix, 11,703 for the joint SmackDown and Hall of Fame speech to hear uh, Scott Steiner with a live mic. 11,703 um, of the tickets that they put on sale, according to WrestleTix, 96% of them sold. Um, so not bad, uh, not a, not a complete sellout, but that's pretty close. Um, I haven't looked in a, in a bit what the, what the raw number is. Uh, we'll, I guess we'll talk about that next week, but, um, raw after mania used to be this really hot ticket that I have the impression that it's, it's in previous years, on uh, pre pandemic, it sold out immediately. Um, as far as I know, that is not, I mean, we've tracked this in, in previous weeks here. Uh, there were 
tickets available for Raw. And I believe there still are tickets available for Raw. Uh, so the Raw after Mania has really changed, you know, and it's not like this. Again, I, th- I think that's that's evidence of of the bifurcation of the audience where you have these people who used to attend raw after mania and uh, would probably give uh crowd reactions that Vince McMahon didn't necessarily want. And uh, those people are still present to some extent, probably, but are less interested in, in attending W events today. I think. Uh, yeah, you know what really surprised me? I, it's funny. I don't know what the raw after WrestleMania um, attendance figure is at the moment, but I saw Russell Ticks had the SmackDown after WrestleMania um, tickets, which is, it's going to be in Milwaukee at the, the Pfizer forum, which is where the Milwaukee Bucks play. So it's the biggest arena in town. And I think they had like, this was a couple of days ago and they had like 4,700 tickets distributed and SmackDown has been selling, I would say in the last month or so pretty, you know, I think what is it? They've had, they had like 9,000 people in Birmingham, Alabama. SmackDown's been doing especially doing, well among among all the Right, in the lead the up to shows. WrestleMania. And to see the tickets for after WrestleMania, and granted it's one show, but to see them at only 4,700 in maybe not the largest market in, in, the, in the world, but, you know, Milwaukee's much larger than Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, you know, I would consider like Milwaukee a relatively major sports market. Um, to see them only at 4,700 made me think, kind of interested about what the they've been drawing WWE's been drawing really well this past month you know Raw's been up Smackdown's been up yeah um really interested to see like is that all Wrestlemania you know anticipation and then after that it's going to drop like a lead balloon or are or you know are they actually building some momentum as, as you, you kind of continue to tour so so WrestleTix as of last count this is date updated today uh 10,500 and 49, 10,549. So about a thousand lower than what SmackDown ended up being. Now there's still, still a day to go for, for raw. Um, but that's, you know, that's clearly not a situation where you can't get tickets. You can get tickets for raw right now, if you want, uh, especially if you want to go to the resale market, but, but, but yeah. In that case, I think you have, um, you know, the two nights of WrestleMania might also, again, be a factor in that. People are exhausted after the two nights of WrestleMania. They don't want to stick around for Raw afterwards. Maybe previously, if their WrestleMania was one night, they're more willing to go to Raw on, on Monday night. Right. Um, in the SmackDown one, it's the it's, it's the SmackDown Hall of Fame. And Undertaker is probably one of the two or three largest figures, especially to the traveling WWE fan base. He's probably the biggest, to be honest, like as far as like, how much he means to those fans. You could tell by the reaction he got last night when he came out um, for like the kind of hall of fame ceremony during WrestleMania. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, I, I was actually kind of surprised they didn't sell out I, under a thousand tickets to me is almost like a functional sellout in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. but that's something that you're really not going to be able to duplicate on other shows is like undertaker's hall of fame ceremony. That's something that's going to happen once undertaker's Ted talk. Yes. As I heard it was, um, <laughs> So let's let's talk about W President Nick Khan, his appearances this week on The Town with Matt Bellany. He, we, he also appeared on CNBC. He said it was I, I found it to be a very much a condensed version of the same thing. But uh, The Town with Matt Bellany, uh, we have a number of clips we'll play here. Um, we've already played the, the WrestleMania clip, uh, but let, let's. Listen to him talk about you know, some of his experiences with WWE before he was hired as the WWE president. So uh, Nick Khan was very involved with uh, helping WWE 
finalize their current US TV deals for Raw and SmackDown. So here's him talking a little bit about that. So in 2017, we all started working on the US media rights deal together. It was reported at 130 million a year as the AAV for Raw and SmackDown, our two weekly shows. We got in business together and there was a heavy multiple on that. I think it went to 3.6 times or something to that effect for those rights. So when you have success with somebody, it gives you even a better glimpse into the world in which they live. And in doing some other deals with WWE, the Hulu deal at the time, some stuff in the UK, we had also had some failures together. Also a good thing when you want to get into business with somebody. So I, I'm more most curious about what what the failures are that he's talking about. Let's not get uh, blow this out of the proportion here. Uh, Raw and SmackDown did get a 3.6x increase. They more than tripled, almost quadrupled their TV rights fees from the prior deal that was made in 2014. Uh, this is the he's talking about the deal that they're under right now. 3.6x increase. They're now getting paid. $265 million per year on an average annual basis for Raw, $205 million per year uh, for SmackDown, which is helping them, which is the, by far the largest piece that's assuring them record-breaking financial year after record-breaking financial year. What are the failures he's talking about here? Do you have any guesses, Jesse? Um, It's hard to say. And I, I wanted to, he gets into this later in the interview, but Nick seems really focused on increasing WWE's IP and the kind of programming that it can produce beyond just Raw, SmackDown, and NXT. Mm-hmm. They talk about the the A&E shows, the, the, the shows that came out as like Peacock exclusive, the WWE Evil series, the, the Vince McMahon movie, the, the documentary that's coming out, um, the, the, the Netflix documentary. So they have all these other projects and he's, he seems really big on, you know, we need to expand. He says later in this interview, I don't know if you're going to play the audio clip, but he says, like, we don't think we've been capitalized on enough when it comes to our intellectual property and the kind of content that we can produce. Mm-hmm. So it's possible when he talks about these failures is that they've pitched a lot of ideas that haven't been received, you know, particularly well by maybe some of their partners or other distributors. Um, so that could be one of them, just off the top of my head. Uh, he also mentions that, when it came to making the Peacock deal that they took a hometown discount. Um, so perhaps maybe they're the, even though that deal I think has been very financially successful for them and allowed them to wash their hands of the network um, and kind of put that cost on NBCU, maybe it wasn't as much as they wanted it to get. I don't know. I, I, I think I get the impression that ESPN was interested in, in, in their, their network rights um, and that ESPN was, was sort of miffed that they, didn't go with them. So I could see ESPN offering them more money, but they'll be choosing NBC Universal because of the existing partnership uh, with Raw and NXT and some of the reality programming. Um, I wonder if he's talking about the UK deal, which seems to have been at best a lateral movement in value, uh, maybe maybe a, a downgrade where they left Sky Sports in the UK and are now on BT Sport and Channel 5. Um I think the UK deal was worth something in the neighborhood of 30, 33 million dollars average annual value with with Sky. I think it's, you know, again, I think it's worth not more where whereas their other, you know, obviously the, the the US TV deal was more than tripled. Uh the India TV deal. India has now surpassed the UK with with this round of negotiations here that happened in, you know, 2019 or so. Uh India has surpassed the UK, uh, India went from about $28 million AAV to $50 million. So roughly doubling the the value 
of uh, of the India deal with Sony. Uh, so maybe he's talking about the UK deal here. I don't know. Maybe he's talking about the value that they got out of NXT. Uh, I, I believe he was involved with negotiations to put NXT on the USA Network in 2019. Um, what did they get? I, I still believe, like at best, until somebody you know proves me wrong or tells me otherwise, I think they're just getting something that's equal to or close to the value of like an ad revenue share. Um, and that NXT, uh, part of the play was to put NXT, part of the play was to compete with AEW Dynamite. But part of the play was to put NXT on linear TV to see if it could get really strong TV rights fees like Raw and SmackDown do. Uh, and to my view, that has not happened at all. Um, and I think, the, again, that they're just getting sort of an ad revenue share. Maybe part of that is what happened in, you know, in 2019 uh, as well. But um, curious comment. So. Um, We'll talk about, uh, or Nick will talk about in, in this interview clip, uh, W's relationship with media. Yeah. And by the way, yes, in the, in the bigger cities, we do as well share wise in terms of viewership as we do in the smaller cities. So it's really programming that appeals to everyone. We also now have the kids who are watching it in the eighties and nineties. Let's say you, let's say Bill Simmons. All of a sudden, in these positions, in my opinion, of power where your voice matters and you can say, yeah, I used to watch it as a kid. So I think 20 years or so ago, Vince would have to pitch the product and beg people to take meetings. Certainly there were no podcasts then, but beg people to do an interview. If you remember contentious interview with Armin Katayan on Real Sports with Costas on his show. We'll get to that. Right. People had no respect mm -hmm. for a product that, in my opinion, should have been respected and now is respected far more than it was. So folks like you and Bill make it easy. Yeah, yeah, we grew up with it. Yeah, happy to get together and talk about this stuff. It's a lot easier to sell now than it was then. So a lot of things to unpack there. Uh, the, the thing that I'm going to bring up first is that he's making it sound like, and maybe we could parse his words here, but he's making it sound like, you know, Vince, uh, we... we Longtime uh, observers of, of Vince McMahon will will remember moments like this. Your old boy has been uh, on trial between for Vince McMahon a, and, and Bill Costas, girl where uh, Vince McMahon moves, and Bill Costas go head to head here on HBO Sports. Sure he saw them on the WWF, but he could have. No one is saying, and there isn't research to back up any direct causal relationship between seeing that or seeing war movies. But does it give you pause at all? You were to, to read something you're like supposed that. to come here and know your stuff, okay? And if you're going to jump me and jump all over me, then you should have watched some of this. And you should really know your facts. I've Bob, seen some I'm of disappointed. it. Vince, I'm I've seen some of it. Would you let me finish? Absolutely. What I'm going to say there, pal, okay? With a big smile. <laughs> this, is, this is amusing. <laughs> no, it's you're, amusing you. You're amusing me. Okay, good. It's we're your both, show. We're both amused. It's your show. So, you know... You, you've got to have the forum here. I understand that. You know? So there, there, there's Vince with, with Bob Costas. And then a couple of years, that was about 2001. And then a couple of years later, uh, HBO did a, did a special on, um, on the deaths that were happening to, to wrestlers, especially at that time, we were dying in their 40s and things like that. And this is a short clip of, of Vince Do McMahon's you have a reason why uh, with these people Armin would be Katayan. dying at the age of 45? Why don't you ask yourself that question? I mean, why... why what, are you indicating that's my responsibility? These people are dead because I'm asking you if it's in any way, shape or form falls on your shoulders. I, I would accept no responsibility whatsoever for their untimely deaths. None whatsoever. As far as and you've got that little look on your face like, yeah, Geez, I'm, I'm, Vince, none, how can you possibly none, say that? Well, but none whatsoever. I mean, they wrestled mean, for you. They, they were part they, of they, your organization. They worked a couple of hundred nights a year for you. Oh they live this oh, lifestyle. Oh, my God. You can't, you can't believe. Oh, can you see that look? I mean, so there's the infamous moment where, where Vince slaps the notes out of Armageddon's hands. Um, 
that's what that's I bring this, these out because well, this is just a show. This is what Nick was referring to. It makes it sound like media didn't have respect for WWE. In 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 a sense, that is true. Uh, I think it's very clear that Vince was 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 the aggressor in these situations. Um, so, any any thoughts on that before I keep going here, Jesse? I have a lot of thoughts about it. <laughs> um, so, on the surface, Nick has a is correct in his assessment in that I do think that the people who are maybe making decisions at the executive level in media, he mentions Bill Simmons. Um, or anyone else who's in their maybe 40s or 50s has a – they grew up with WWE in a lot of cases, especially if they were sports fans or they, they're familiar with WWE and, and Vince McMahon. And so in a way, the way the, the way society views pro wrestling and views Vince McMahon, you know, maybe people under the age of 60 is very different than maybe people over the age of 60 in the sense that they grew up with WWE – and they they may be they maybe know some bad stuff about Vince or anything like that, but by and large, the way he's treated is as like kind of this wacky figure who's had a lot of success in this crazy pro wrestling industry, and he's kind of viewed as like this harmless figure, right? And I think that that translates a lot to a lot of these interviews that you see. Mm-hmm. Um, the second aspect of this is the media's relationship, not just to WWE, but to a lot of different entities when it comes to reporting in the sports and entertainment industry. In that if you, both the Costas interview and the, the, the Katayan interview, right? There is a um, very critical assessment of WWE. And it's almost like here, we're going to do this expose on this big story. And we got the presidents and CEO of the company to come in and talk about some of these problems. It's, it's people are dying. People wrestling is unsafe for children. It's a bad influence. And the industry killed all of these, these wrestlers. And, and it's a very critical assessment of it today. The mainstream coverage of WWE in particular is it's not only is it it's not an expose by and large, it's not um, hostile at all. It's not even critical, and if you look at it, it's often almost like a content partnership with these mainstream media outlets. In, in the case of the this interview, con- WWE has a relationship with the Ringer. Correct. There's a paid relationship between. Uh, a, there's a business agreement between the Ringer and WWE for the Ringer to contribute positive WWE coverage. That's basically what it is, right? And in turn, the ringer gets things like David Shoemaker got the Cody interview right after WrestleMania. Obviously, that's probably like a big scoop that comes about because of this. Um, And the town is a podcast on the ringer podcast network. So it's not a surprise that Nick Khan's on this podcast and he's not coming on WrestleNomics and he's not coming on Wrestling Observer Radio. He's on Um, CNBC with their their partners on NBC Universal. Yeah, and even more that like I, like I, I'm a big fan of The Ringer. I watch, listen to a fair amount of their podcasts. I, I read the website on a regular basis. I think they do a lot of good jobs in a lot of different fields. I'm disappointed that the view is like, oh, well, let's partner with WWE so we can get some WWE content out there, and we can have their wrestlers on our podcasts, and we can write about how stupendous the first night of WrestleMania was. Um, I have noticed the Athletic which is recently bought by the New York times, but is a subscription based sports website. They also cover 
wrestling, but they really just cover WWE. And if you look at their coverage of WWE, it's very different than their coverage of Major League Baseball or the National Football League or professional soccer. It's not in-depth. It's not critical assessment of anything. It's just like, oh, here's a fun feature on how great Sasha Banks is. And I'm not saying there's not space for that, but it seems to me that when it comes to the mainstream media coverage of wrestling, it's so different than what you were showing like in the Costas interview, which is this you know, scandalous expose of this really dangerous, bad industry. Yeah, It is now like, how can we get some extra eyeballs on our product? And much like the way WWE partners with NBC Universal and Fox to produce contents for those networks, they are partnering in a way with these mainstream media outlets to get positive publicity for them and to, in a lot of ways, avoid potential negative coverage. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a... A, a strong point to make that there is, and l- let me just play this this quick introduction from Brian Gumble from the 2003 HBO sports piece. ...than sport and more con than competition, there would seem to be little about pro wrestling that could or even should be taken seriously. But there is one deadly serious aspect that merits attention, and that is that wrestlers have been dying young at a rate that is 400% higher than normal. So just just the I mean, obviously, that that's relative to the story that they're talking about, which is these you know unnecessarily early deaths, but the sort of condescending, there's nothing to take seriously about this hokey business. Uh, I apologize for even covering this. We're only covering it because there's this very serious issue disclaimer, whereas now, as you as you I, I think the point you're making, Jesse, is that there's people who've grown up as fans. And it's 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 more fluff type content, um, and I don't really know how to explain why there isn't more critical coverage in the mainstream about WWE. Um, I can explain that. I think. <laughs> please do. Two elements to it, and, and not the not first. limited to mainstream. But go ahead. <laughs> so I'm talking, yeah, in, in the mainstream media. So the first element is almost related to what. Brian Gubble says, which is there's almost nothing to be taken seriously in pro wrestling. You can just stop right there. The fact that wrestling, the number one thing the average person knows about pro wrestling is that it's fake, correct? Mm-hmm. Right. If you were to ask and someone who d- couldn't name a single wrestler, like, oh, pro wrestling, they'd say, isn't that fake? Mm-hmm. Right. It's the number one thing people know about it. And so it, it, it exists in this kind of strange world where we don't have to cover it that seriously because it's fake. And even though there are these serious stories about it, ultimately it's fake. So therefore we can kind of, we don't have to critically evaluate it closely. Yeah. Right. Some wrestling media people will say wrestling's supposed to be fun. Let's just cover it. Cause it's fun. You know, let's come on. Don't be so mad. It's just, it's stupid pro wrestling. I disagree with that assessment um, in the sense that, but the, inherently, the idea that wrestling being fake is the number one kind of message that most people have about professional wrestling lends itself to poor media scrutiny because people can just kind of wash it off as all just big this big ruse. Even if it's something serious like all these people are dying, it's it's pro wrestling. It's not a real sport. So it doesn't get treated as such, even if the issues are just as real as issues in the NFL or the NBA or college sports or anything that gets covered at a way more critical level. And the I second part, reason for part, oh, go ahead, finish your point. No, 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 make your point. I got a second separate reason, but if you and I think part of the issue is that 
nobody knows what category of, of media or news to put to put pro wrestling in. The sports sports department doesn't want to have it in their sports department because it's it's fake and the, the finishes Correct. are predetermined. And um, I don't know the enter, the entertainment industry sees it as the lowest brow form of entertainment um, you know that there is. So it's not something that the entertainment department wants to take that seriously. It's not something that the sports department wants to defile itself with. So nobody knows. You know, there's nobody knows who should cover this, I guess. And and what we end up with is now, just partly a good thing, is that we have at least more coverage of it from these sort of I think they're all former fans, to be quite honest, who aren't aren't week to week fans in in modern times, but as when they were kids or whatever, which is, you know, what the the eighties or the early nineties, which is when this was especially a, a WF was a kids oriented product, you know, that's when they grew an affinity for it. Um, so that's, that's, what's accounting for that, that change. Go ahead. Yeah. And my second point is somewhat related to what you said, which is who are the people that are covering this at the mainstream level? And um, I think you and I, Brandon can agree that the people who would do the best job covering professional wrestling um in overall sense are not necessarily the people who are going to get jobs in mainstream with mainstream media outlets. Um, maybe they already have their own outlets like David Meltzer or Wade Keller or John Pollock, but they're not going to be person who's already working at the athletic or already working at um, CBS sports or something like that. Mm-hmm. You mentioned it. It's going to be like former fans. It's going to be, um, people who who maybe grew up watching it and like the opportunity of like, oh, I get to cover pro wrestling and I get to interview like Stone Cold Steve Austin maybe one time. Right. And I think that contributes at the mainstream media level to poor coverage in a lot of ways because it's not necessarily it's not necessarily that the writers are maybe out of their depth. A lot of it to me comes down to editorial and management. And if I am a like you said, the sports department maybe doesn't want pro wrestling. If, if you are running a sports department, you're like, oh, we're going to cover some pro wrestling. You know, you probably repurpose a college football writer who maybe has some interest in pro wrestling and they're going to write a story about pro wrestling and they're going to cover it. And they might just get stuff wrong and stuff mistakes in, in, in the way things are represented on a pro wrestling story is not necessarily going to be held to the same standard that it would be covering mainstream sports. Because mm-hmm. if the editor or the person who's overseeing the content does not have really any specific knowledge about pro wrestling. They're just going to take their word for it in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I see that kind of happens a lot when you see mistakes and factual miscues and, and things like that. And the way things being represented it being very clearly kind of one-sided in a way that also contributes it, tr- contributes it. Um, I talked to, or I talked to uh, Justin Barrasso about this at one point. And I think I, in my experience, so Justin works for Sports Illustrated. In my experience, Justin is like the most serious wrestling fan that is probably working with like a major recognized mainstream outlet as far as like what his interests are and stuff like that. And I remember asking him like, how did you get, how did you convince people to let you write about pro wrestling? And he said, you know, I had people who were on the editorial staff who were big pro wrestling fans and they really championed it and allowed me to pursue it when maybe in other sports departments that wouldn't be encouraged. And I think, I don't know if that's the case for a lot of these mainstream media outlets that are covering pro wrestling, but I think that is probably the, 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 um, 
the factor. I mean, I, I, I read, I listen to a lot of Bill Simmons podcasts. I think Bill Simmons is probably perhaps the biggest single wrestling fan that is in a very, that is kind of like at his level of power within the broader media atmosphere. And I know Bill's wrestling takes, they're not necessarily like, um, super enlightened it's like a lot of it oh my kid got back into it and i started watching it too and he knows enough about the industry probably more than than the average way more than the average person but he's not necessarily you know a, a dave Meltzer or a wade keller type that's going to be able to look at everything with a super critical and, a, and be able to assess it in a clean way and i think that's reflected in a lot of the ringers coverage of pro wrestling personally right um so i, th- I think we're we can stay on the topic of of media coverage of, of wrestling, uh, maybe in, in, in relation to this next topic, but, uh, in, in, in fairness to, to Matt Bellany, he, he does push back on, um, on, this? on, on some of Nick's, uh, responses, uh, including to this, this subject. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's, let's play the clip now where he's talking about, um, talent relations and, um, whether or not, uh, yeah, how, how talent, uh, development is, is a meritocracy. Yeah, I mean, some of the attention does come on the group uh, over the relationship with the wrestlers. And there's been you know, claims of, of abuse and people who have had negative uh, negative experiences with the group. But what have you done or are you doing anything to change that impression? And how does how is the relationship? If I asked a not the stars, if I asked, you know, middle of the road wrestler for WWE, how, how, how do you feel you're treated? What would that person say? Look, I, I think, number one, everyone's treated humanely, mm-hmm. which everyone obviously deserves to be treated that way. I do think there's analogies with our company and other companies. So you're a big Dodgers guy. I am. Right. Lakers still a big Lakers guy. Yeah, yeah tough. Yeah, tough I was right a Shaq now. guy. Was Shaq treated better than any player on the team other than Kobe? Yeah, yeah, of course. The, that's the way it is. But they weren't going public with claims that they had to, you know, take steroids and do other things to keep up. I mean, I, I get it. It's it's a but it's a, it's different. It's not sports. It's show business. This is a show. It, it's definitely show business. So. And I know we had discussed earlier that this will be the Will Smith, Chris Rock stuff would be old news by that time. Feel free to but slap me if you have any problems. That with would be question. you to me, you know, not me. <laughs> no, but um, you literally you have a boss that could that could slap or body slam you at any moment. Any moment. We don't we don't want any kind of problems like that. Um, but even on the Will Smith thing, like he wasn't escorted out of that room last night. Part of it was people didn't know what to do because they hadn't experienced it before. But part of it was that he's Will Smith and, you know, tough to have security, you know, grab him and toss him out of the building. So I get the position that they were in. It's the same way with us. It's a meritocracy. So if you're at the top of the card, you know, hey, maybe you have a bigger dressing room than the person at the bottom of the card. But everyone has the same opportunity to earn their way there. Everyone has the same opportunity to earn their way to the top of the card, says Nick Khan. Uh, the stand of scrutiny, Jesse. Brandon, find me a, a CEO, a company president of any corporation of any job that will say that their business is not America. <laughs> it is the most hollow, empty um, statement you can make. It means nothing about about it. it to, to an extent, wrestling is a meritocracy, right? Um, Stone Cold Steve Austin probably made a lot more money last night than, uh, I don't know, Rick Books, right? Mm-hmm. That's because Stone Cold Steve Austin, and he probably got bigger perks. You know, he maybe got his own dressing room. Maybe, maybe they, maybe they paid for his transportation, right? Um, 
so yeah, he, I mean, he's right. I mean, I don't think now I give, I give Matt, uh, Bellany a lot of credit. You know, Matt is, he's excited. This was a friendly interview for starters, right? Mm-hmm. You can even tell from that clip that they seem to have a relationship before. This is not the first yeah. time they met. It, this isn't, you know, Bob Costas leaning closer to Vince McMahon to ask him, you know, why did these children die? It's a, it's a friendly interview. Um, but Matt, more than pretty much anyone else that interviews wrestlers is a real reporter. He's the ex-editor of the Hollywood Reporter and and has, you know, some journalistic integrity that he tries to maintain, at least he's, in this interview. With, with the puck now. By pushing back a little bit, and he does a pretty good job mm-hmm. in that end. And uh, to me, like, he, but, he, but at, to an extent, he also asks kind of like an outdated question, which is like, guys were forced to take steroids to feel like they had to compete, which is maybe true to an extent now in wrestling, but is also something that feels like something that was maybe more relevant 25 to 35 years ago. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I the... believe I tend to believe I don't think there were, was ever a discussion between Vince McMahon and a wrestler at any point in Vince McMahon's career where he said, you have to get on steroids. Now, maybe people felt pressured. I'm sure many people, especially in the eighties and nineties, maybe earlier nineties felt pressure to use steroids to compete with their peers. Um, I'm more skeptical that Vince pulled somebody in the room and said, you know what, pal, you got to get on some DECA. Um, But I think, yeah, an immense pressure to this day to have a a great physique to compete with your peers. Right. And if everyone that's being pushed has a certain type of physique, it's whether it's, you know, directly told or not, it's the same result. Especially in that, that sort of mid, mid-2000s era where, you know, the, the two new guys getting the big push were Batista and John Cena. And God, they were like the most, they, they both looked the most like bodybuilders out of anybody in that company. They uh, were bodybuilders. Indeed. And uh, so I, th- I think there's, you know, you, you look around the room and look, look at who's getting the push. And uh, if you see Batista and John Cena, you know, look, look like they're, they're jacked to the gills. Well, I got, maybe if I look more like them, I'll get a better opportunity uh, to be at the top of the card or to work with them or to take their spot. So there's that. Yeah. But to me, like when we talk about like, you have the picture of Ali and Brock Lesnar, right? Mm -hmm. There are a lot more questions about talent relations that are more uh, relevant from a time standpoint than maybe asking about steroids. Mm -hmm. Right. I would be asking about Saudi Arabia, yeah. wrestlers being the wrestlers being left on the wrestlers who weren't were deemed expendable were left on the plane and the wrestlers who were deemed important enough were taken off the plane or i don't really care if you know roman reigns has his own private dressing room and i think nick khan kind of you know um artfully spins the question and kind of directs it towards a more relatable way that doesn't seem perhaps as egregious right um in a way uh you know the third party deals and and, and being able to profit off of your likeness and all of those kind of aspects seem to be more like to- like relevant questions about like what is your relationship with your talents. Uh, right. What we've been seeing lately is um, I know there was at the I believe the last Endeavor earnings call, um, Brandon Ross from Lightshed was asking I believe Ari, Ari Emanuel about what the revenue sh- split is like in in UFC uh, with the fighters versus you know the company um, in a lot of sports you know, major team sports, it's believed that it's about 50, 50, 50% of the revenue ends up going to the players. Um, less than 50% of the revenue is going to the fighters in UFC. I would venture to guess that far less uh, than whatever percentage fighters in UFC are getting far less of that, uh, uh, 
WWE wrestlers are getting a lower percentage of that in an environment where WWE is making more money than ever, where they just got, you know, not just like, but I've been 2018, got a 3.6x increase in their biggest TV deals. They seem well positioned to get at least a moderate increase in the, in the upcoming negotiations that will you know, start maybe this year, or next year, but we will be completed in late 2024. Um, this company is on track to, to set profitability records every year for the foreseeable future, uh, uh, barring any, any, some, any, any catastrophe. And then this, this company just endured a pandemic, the worst times of a pandemic where they were more profitable than ever during that time too. And in fact, in some ways, the pandemic caused them to lower their expenses because they didn't have to go on the road and, and, and set up, you know, and, and incur massive production costs that come with putting on the kind of production that they put on in arenas. Um, this company's more profitable than ever. Are the, are the wrestlers benefiting from that? Maybe to some extent. I do sense that uh, wrestlers are getting paid more. Are they getting paid more though because the company is making more? I doubt that so much as it's the fact that there's a competition for talent among WWE and AEW. And that's, you know, at least benefiting some talent in terms of them being able to get better deals. But these, uh, but, but wrestlers are probably getting a pretty low percentage of the revenue. And not to mention that they're classified as independent contractors when, if you do an IRS 10 factor test or something like that, I think any reasonable person would, would conclude that wrestlers, especially in WWE, but in AEW also are misclassified as independent contractors when really they're being treated as employees. Right. And Vince can fire someone at any time and you get your 90 days of pay and then you're done. But if you want to leave your contract, you can't as the picture of Ali will show people that, Mm -hmm. you know, the contracts work much better for one person than they do for the other party. Um, Yeah. I mean, like you said, the revenue sharing between the talent and the amount of profit that the company is making is not the equivalent to other companies. And going back, I don't want to harp too much on the media coverage, but going back to the media coverage, like when Kevin Owens re-signed with WWE, framed as this like, oh, he got so much money. He got such a great deal. What a great day day it is to be Kevin Owens because he got so much money. It's like, did he? I'm sure he got a lot of money. Like he got a lot of money to like you or I, Brandon. But did he really get a lot of money relative to the value of a wrestler in WWE? Kind of skeptical of that. Yeah. Um, So we'll do one more clip from Nikon's interview on the town. This is uh, his comments about um, Matt Bellany raising the issue of whether whether WWE would be acquired by NBC Universal. Um, So here's that comment. Look, you know, as we say, we're open for business. So if you look at what does NBCU slash Comcast lack that they need? And I think it's a factual statement. They don't have the intellectual property that some other companies have. They certainly don't have the Disney treasure trove of IP, nor should they. But if you've had the experience, I'm not suggesting good or bad. Have you taken your kid yet to Universal Studios? Actually, we're going next month. You'll see what you've already read about. You'll see a Jaws ride, which... They can't do anything with. I'm sure they'd love to have an annual summer Jaws limited series on Peacock. They can't do it unless Spielberg agrees to it. And obviously he has not. You'll see a Harry Potter ride, which is obviously Warner. You'll see, I think it's open now, a Mario Brothers thing, which is Nintendo. So in terms of their own IP for their theme parks, you'll see minions all over the place. Well, that's the thing. My, My kid saw a commercial for the Secret Life of Pets ride. 
And he was like, I want to go there. So we're going. It matters. Right. It matters. So I I think they look at us, or at least the way I'd like to think they look at us, is an entity that has a treasure trove of intellectual property. A lot of it has been largely not exploited yet. We're in the process of doing that. There's a bunch of scripted and unscripted announcements we have this week. So there's that. I think that's one of the more honest parts of this interview. Partly because he's kind of leveraging, it sounds to my ear, that he's, he's kind of leveraging, hey, look, uh, here's a weakness for uh, Universal Studios. They don't have a lot of cell-phoned IP, and wouldn't it be great if they came up with some deal, whether it's outright acquisition or just a licensing deal, to include WWE IP in, into something like Universal Studios? Yeah, well, um, if this comes on, the, what wasn't part of that clip is it comes on the heels of a question that... Uh, the host asks, which is when Nick talks about the Peacock deal and Matt's kind of like, well, you know, Peacock's not Disney plus or Netflix. It's not like this really strong streaming platform. And then Nick kind of says, well, because it's not Disney plus or Netflix, WWE is even more valuable to it because of the intellectual property it can bring to the table because Universal doesn't have it at the Disney level, doesn't have it at the, the Time Warner HBO Max level. Um so there's that. I mean, this is this has been a discussion. I'm really kind of fascinated in what other ways WWE can think it can exploit its brand to consumers. You know, you can have these kind of historically based TV shows like the WWE Evil programming or the the Hidden Treasures show on A&E and these kind of like historic based reality shows or docu-series. We've seen WWE try, you know, rest, WWF restaurants, WWF New York, um, the one in Niagara Falls, which was open yes. much longer. The pile driver. The pile driver. Yes, that was the 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 um Clifton the Hill. Tower yes. that was on top of the building. Yeah. Like a yes. WWE themed amusement park ride. Well, that's what I thought of when he was talking about like Universal Studios. Right. Uh uni- I could say this Universal is building a third park in Orlando, Florida that um i forget exactly what it's called but they have islands of adventure and they have universal studios they're currently in the process of building a third park there is not a wwe land that is on their radar screen that they are developing perhaps maybe one day they will expand if we will have be able to ride the hulk hogan experience yes um i, I want to ride or, the um the, the the vince mcmahon brass ring ride <laughs> yeah like it, it, so like i don't i'm like what do you like like use your imagination. Like, what do you think that there could be possibly other ways that maybe WWE could be exploiting its IP beyond maybe like just like doing some docu series TV shows? Like, what else can NBCU get out of a WWE relationship beyond just maybe filling some TV hours? I, I think a theme park licensing deal is, is something that that could be done, and I think there's that would add to their attractions, right? I and mean, we've we've heard the topic brought up over the years uh why isn't there a physical hall of fame for w you know you do this hall of fame ceremony every year um and i I know at least triple h has sort of you know downplayed that idea that they didn't want to do a physical hall of fame i i can see that not working out for them if they're doing that independently but if there's you know a w hall of fame as part of a universal studios theme park maybe that makes a lot more sense um but yeah and theme parks sort of just popped up in this interview as something that's, yeah. And, and we might've discussed this in passing over the years, a couple of times, but uh, probably something that, that should, should be more towards the top of my mind in terms of, you know, ways that they could license their intellectual property to, um, 
to to drive more revenue. And it it brings to mind too sort of the, the difference between W and AEW here in that. Let's let's imagine we're in a future where where AEW is is way more popular and way more has way more name ID and legacy uh, than it does now as a what three year old company. Um, if things if their relationship with talent and their trademarks are what are then what they are today, I, I you know where where the talent con- seems to control their their names and their likenesses and their their trademarks more so than WWE talent do. I don't know that AEW would would have the ability to 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 do a deal like this, like would AEW be able to license out, you know, a CM Punk's likeness or MJF's likeness? I don't know that they would have the, the rights to do that, but WWE does because there's, you know, you can look at the, uh, the USPTO filings and see how, how regularly they're, they're, they're filing trademarks uh, for their talent. Yeah. That's a good point about that. This does gives WWE flexibility. It's, it's kind of interesting because WWE has, um, AEW seems like they're so far away in their current scheme, scheme, uh, to, to try to exploit something like that, because, you know, what is Tony focused on? I he's focused on getting in his next TV deal and maybe finding a streaming partner and maybe getting some sponsors for his show. Like it's just WWE is because they're so, they've had so many years of, of, of being a powerful corporation. They're continuing looking for new ways to find revenue. Um, which is what you want to do to impress your stockholders is to say, look, we, you know, we're doing this now and we're doing that. And I think the big thing we've seen last year or two on WWE programming is the like live on air sponsorships of certain things. Everyone remembers the, 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 the rock, uh, the rocks, Netflix movie and the, 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 the what is it? Was it the golden egg, the, the egg. golden yes. egg, <laughs> the pizza hut battle the royal. The the Rey Mysterio uh, Victoria Beer wrestling gear last night. The um the entrance of Nakamura and yes. Boogs was sponsored by Mark, Mike's Hard Lemonade. Here we're giving them a plug right now because of this. Yeah, and there was the uh, the Pizza Hut Battle Royal that they had. I think um, mm-hmm. a while back they had the Miz movie with Miz got eaten by. Uh, I mean, it wasn't the Miz movies, the Batista movie, but the Miz got the eaten zombies. by zombies. Yes, um, forget. you're seeing way more of those in WWE programming, like not just ads during WWE programming, although you're certainly seeing more of those on pay-per-view since it moved to Peacock, but like, like, like advertisements within the product itself. Yeah. And do you um, think that's a, is that a net positive? Obviously you get to make a deal that, that company, that sponsor agrees to pay you X number of dollars. And maybe there's other things that come along with that relationship that are beneficial. Um, is it, is it worth it though? I think there are negatives associated with that in terms of how you execute it, I guess. But especially, you know, the, the zombie thing, you know, even the most usually pro WWE uh, media people were were critical of, of the zombies. Um, I, I don't know that it doesn't reinforce uh, a, you know, a, an, an alienated relationship with your fan base and with your potential fan base when you do things like that. Right. I remember I was talking to somebody um, about the Pizza Hut battle royal kind of thing. And they said, from a business, from an advertising standpoint, if you're Pizza Hut and you watch this crappy battle royal, like, do you actually want your product associated with something that fans feel negatively about? Mm-hmm. Um, now, that is a big assessment um, or a big, um, uh, a big kind of um, assumption that the people watching Pizza Hut would be able to identify that the battle royal is poor. And it's a big assumption to think that the people who were, you know, who were producing the, the the zombie movie understood that the Miz segment was really bad. 
Um, they might just be like, oh, pro wrestling, so weird. Ha, what is this? Like, they might not think that it's, like, really stupid. I don't know. Uh, and in the end results, kinda... I understand the Batista zombie movie that they were promoting did very well. So it's not like there's a result in, in that partner's business where they're like, well, this didn't work out. Right. Well, you know, this, it's a movie. It could, uh, there could be a million factors and why it succeeded at the box office and failed. And one advertising yeah. uh, aspect of it is not going to change that that much but it is kind of you're right about like alienating your fans i i, I agree like um i think vince has always been I, I mean he has to have been otherwise it would have happened a million years ago has always been kind of against putting advertisements on the ring like mm-hmm. you see in a lot of like japanese promotions and you see in ufc and right and you see in AEW like, to an extent too yes that, that was a big thing when AEW, which is funny because i didn't even notice it and then everyone was freaking out like uh, about this advertisement that was on it and i was like I'm just so used to, I don't know if it's watching a lot of new Japan or watching other sports where advertisements are just everywhere all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have like uh but Vince, I think is, as it must be against that concept, but yeah, like special outfits, plugging it during shows, having like your, your dumb comedy match be sponsored by something. I think that's all different new ways to exploit WWE's product in a way that can earn additional revenue that maybe they haven't exploited fully before. Um, I just I'm really skeptical on like the idea that WWE fans and people that understand wrestling are going to pursue like non-wrestling related things because it has some fake connection with pro wrestling. Like going to the WWF New York or going to to see a WWE scripted movie that comes out into theaters or going to an amusement park because it has a WWE attraction. I, I just don't know. I, I kind of I don't feel like they have the kind of, I don't think that, you know, Nick says it a million times. We want to be Marvel. We want to be Disney. I just, it's hilarious to me to think of WWE being like that because I just don't think that they have that kind of cachet um, outside of maybe a small section of their own fan base. Yeah. And um, I think part of it too is, is the relationship with, with your audience. I think the W audience while there are many who still are very enthusiastic about about it, uh, I I have I see many people on Twitter who may or may not be burner accounts, you know, yelling various things in my my Twitter replies when I accidentally look at them. Uh, so there's still a lot of people who are passionate about WWE and who love exactly what they're doing now. There's a lot of people who are less engaged with it than they would be because they feel alienated by it. Because I, you know, I think WWE over certainly since about 2016 to the present and maybe it's leveling off now finally but 2016 roughly to the to the present has turned off its core audience damaged its relationship with that audience and i think when you know you've you've got a potential audience there that that if they felt better about this product trusted this product they would be more willing to engage with with these products that your company is associated with um but you're left with with who's left and uh, that's that's fewer people, and that means less engagement for your partners. Yeah, you've talked about it a lot before in the past, where WWE is benefiting a lot from a very competitive content market when it comes to all of these various entities looking to fill TV time with WWE's products, um, and that's you know led to the increase in television you know rights, despite the fact that viewership is like total viewership is half what it was five or six years ago for a show like raw. And how much more could they be successful if they didn't turn off half of their audience? Right. If they didn't 
you know, if they were being successful, I know you have the chart with the Google trends. If people want a more, I do a different metric beyond television viewership. But as you see, um, WWE in the, the far left column. They, they, it looks like they're breaking their streak. So what we're looking at here okay. on the screen for, for people watching on YouTube is yeah. uh, worldwide Google web search, uh, monthly, year-over-year comparisons uh, for all these promotions, including WWE. Uh, WWE has been, until January of this year, had been on uh, a streak of negative comparisons going back to something like mid-2018. It, it, it goes beyond the chart we're seeing here. From roughly mid-2018, their worldwide Google web search trends were a negative comparison every month until January 2021. And March is up also. February was down, but January was up 9%. March was up 10%. So when I was looking at that chart, um, what's interesting, and WWE is really in a different stratosphere than all of these other wrestling companies. Mm -hmm. So it's, I don't know how much of a point you can draw between the two, but... And and WWE, to be clear, so we're not misleading people, WWE would... I, I, I can do like a pie chart of all these companies. What we've got here are, you know, the, the, the wrestling companies that would come to mind first for people. And there's about 15 of them, including AEW, New Japan, Impact, Ring of Honor, Stardom, and so on. If we put a pie chart together of all the web search that all those companies uh, draw over, over the course of most any recent time period, we would get about 80% of that volume going to WWE and the 20% divvied up among the rest just give you an idea of the overwhelming dominance of WWE, at least when it comes to web search and i think that's reflective of other things but yeah right but looking at the trends overall what's interesting to me is that with the exception of a few different companies most of these companies experiencing negative year-over-year trends throughout 2020 and 2021 just like wwe and then most of those companies turning that trend around in 2022 I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's a return to live audiences making a big factor, but it's interesting to note that like, just looking at this chart, a company like um, Dragon Gate or Noah, well, those have different kind of things. Dragon Gate, because Dragon Gate's a very consistent company year to year for the most part, you know, down for most of 2020 and 2021, and then up, you know, in the last few months in 2022, you can look at, other companies like that, even AEW kind of following a somewhat similar metric, although you can see big increases for things like CM Punk and Brian Danielson's debut. But for the most part, WWE is kind of similar to a lot of the trends in other companies. I don't know how relevant that is, because like you said, WWE is just in such a different stratosphere. But I did find it kind of interesting that their trends kind of mirror the trends of other promotions, um, with a few exceptions here and there. Yeah, I, I think it's on, based on the table that we're looking at here. I think it's meaningful that um, in since July 2021, since they've been back on the road, there were still negative comparisons. July, August, September, October, November, December. Um, there's that happening. Um, I don't have it immediately at, at my fingertips right now, but I can compare this and I've tweeted charts like this. Uh, just looking at, or let's not look at other wrestling companies, let's compare WWE to other sports leagues over a long course of time. And it's it's WWE going down, it's these other sports leagues either. Most for the most part, let's say fifteen of the, the the biggest sports leagues in the world, like the NFL, the NBA, uh, Indian Indian Premier League, EPL, uh, NASCAR, UFC. And it's most of them being stable. WWE being down from about 2016 onward, and now to the point where UFC has surpassed WWE in web search. We can debate what that means. So, mm-hmm. yeah, just another metric. But it, but overall, it's just another metric to kind of show 
to get back to kind of the original point that WWE could probably be so much more profitable and relevant if they weren't in this let's burn out our core audience phase of the company over the last three or four years. Um, it was int- I think you made a good point about how like WrestleMania weekend and the Monday Raw, Raw after WrestleMania, maybe the reactions are different because the fans who would maybe go against WWE stopped coming. I think it's kind of relevant that like Roman Reigns stopped getting booed and started becoming like the darling favorite of all WWE fans. Um, kind of at the same time, like where all of the wrestling fans who maybe booed Roman Reigns stopped watching WWE mm-hmm. and I think people use like, oh, well, he was getting booed and now he's getting booed, but it's part of his character. And now he's really over and all these things. And he's fine. He's finally done it and all that kind of thing like that. To me, I look at that and I say like, well, I feel like all the fans that were really mad about the Roman Reigns push stopped watching like around year three or year four of it. And obviously, AEW coming along and providing an alternative to those fans also plays a factor. But I think a lot of like what finally got Roman over was that all the people that didn't like him stopped watching, which I don't really consider that a success. Yeah. Um. TV ratings have been doing well recently. Um, SmackDown is pretty pretty flat, and in some comparisons, you look at total viewership, they're up a little bit. Uh, Raw did a good rating this past Monday. That's one week. Um, but r- ratings seem to be stabilizing somewhat. These numbers here give me another reason to think that popularity generally is stabilizing for WWE. But it's not as if they haven't lost... Uh, you know, they haven't seen negative differences in a, in a number of different areas, including this web search, including in some years where their loss of viewership year over year was worse than some comparisons of TV generally, uh, ticket sales, merchandise sales. Obviously, COVID uh, complicates some of that. But um, just to get head towards wrapping up, um, I uh, I listened just maybe some final thoughts on on the SNCCon interview or his media appearances is what he means to WB. Um, I, I listened to this interview uh, on, on, on the ride home from work that I think the day that it came out and uh, I have, I've found Nick Khan's inter- you know, media appearances to be pretty fascinating, even including this one. Um, I, I felt that this was the interview that felt most like spin to me. Um, I, I will tell you that I've spoken to some people who, you know, in, including uh, people who invest in WWE, who loved this interview, thought he came off brilliantly. Uh, his answers were fantastic and smooth. Um, I was exasperated by this interview when I first heard it. And I, I, I DM'd you, Jesse, and uh, you, ha- you had to explain to me how, how WWE really works and calm you down. Um, I, I, <laughs> I, I feel like, obviously, he's talented at his job. The skills that he has... That made him, you know, apparently an excellent sports agent are apparent here. Just in the way that he's speaking, even to the interviewer, where he's like, You're a big Dodgers fan, right? Oh, Lakers fan. Uh, the way that he's clearly somebody who makes an effort to to connect with people um and to get to know them and develop these relationships that maybe end up being important in business relationships. Um the the big story to me of pro wrestling though, and the reason why I'm so into doing WrestleNomics and so into doing uh, analysis and writing about the wrestling business, partly is because that I feel that there's this tremendous conflict between the quality of the product and the business results of the product. And it's the elephant in the room to me in, in, in interviews like this, the elephant in the room to me is the quality of the product. And 
I think I've called it like the last kayfabe. The last kayfabe, the last thing that must be protected and not acknowledged is that there that the that the product uh isn't good and it's because of Vince McMahon. Uh nobody can say that for obvious reasons. Uh and I that was more present than ever to me in this interview, I guess. Uh I think one of the things I said to you is I, I still don't know who Nick Khan is, like in the in the privacy of his own mind. Does he when he does, and he's clearly somebody who's more connected to to the product. He's paying attention to the product more so than somebody like George Barrios seemed to. George Barrios didn't seem to be familiar with the names of some some of the top talent at times. He's somebody who's who's clearly more of a fan. Um, I just don't know, like, if we gave him truth serum, what does he really think of this product? Is is he like is he one of these people who who just thinks it's awesome genuinely, or or is he he like you know this is this is my job and uh, I'm just going to do a really great job at monetizing this further. And I know I can't really do anything to make Vince do something differently. So we're just going to, you know, accept this is the way it is. And this is what I'm going to do. When it comes to critical assessment of WWE's product, it can be a challenge for people like you and I, and probably most of the people listening to this podcast in that it's hard to get out of our bubble. It's hard to understand what a casual fan thinks about WrestleMania or the Royal Rumble or one of the shows that they might tune into. Um, I always, I never turned down an opportunity to talk to somebody who said, Oh, I bought this show for the, I bought a wrestling show for the first time in years. I want to know what they think about it because it's so hard to get that perspective. Um, So you and I can both say WWE product is terrible. It's insulting to the viewer, all of these things. I still don't know if people that casually watch the product think that Um, we can look at business metrics and say they definitely run off fans, but it's hard for me to think like Nick Khan is sitting there the way that you and I are and be like, this is insulting. He might just laugh and just say, Oh man, this business is, is crazy. Vince is a madman, but like, he doesn't really, he's not getting to a critical, a real critical thought about the product. Um, he, obviously, like you said, the elephant in the room is that the product is bad. And to, to, to Khan's point, you kind of said like, Oh, he's more with the product than Barrios is. And that's, that's, that's probably true. In general, Khan is just way more media friendly than the previous WWE presidents. And it's so very, WWE, very connected to sports media. That's been a yes. like since day one. Yeah. And WWE is way more comfortable having him, you know, Vince is probably way more comfortable having him go out there and say the right things. As you said, when you talk to somebody in WWE, they were very, they, oh, Nick did a great job in this interview. You know, he's, he's so great um, because he's so media friendly. And in a lot of ways, I think that warps people's perspective on who is actually running this company. And it's not Nick Khan, it's Vince McMahon. And so in a lot of ways, Nick Khan has been credited to WWE's successes and he's been credited to some failures that WWE has had in the eyes of the fans, right? Nick Khan cut all those talents. Nick Khan, you know, destroyed NXT. Nick Khan didn't do any of that. Vince did. Vince is in charge. Ultimately, he gets credit and blame. And so he's like, when people ask him these questions, like, and, uh, you know, Matt, uh, Bellany asks like some questions about the content, like, Oh, how are you going to build new stars? And Nick kind of prattles off about, you know, over, you know, now we're recruiting college football players as if that's a new concept, as if Roman Reigns isn't a college, former college football player or the rock or John Cena or Steve Austin, or like a million other people in pro wrestling. Um, their answer would be like, like, imagine if, if the NIL program was available to Roman Reigns or Biggie. Right. And the NIL program is a PR stunt. 
like that that's one of the I've seen them get a lot of positive press about oh WWE changing the game with the NIL program like yeah there there are articles within the past few days about uh, I don't know his name but there's one of their NIL recruits and there was an article about that person and the program in ESPN this this past week right so but that's what it is like I mean I don't even want to get into the NIL thing there's those uh the Fresno State basketball playing I forget they're like the Cavender sisters or something like that and these are people that are allegedly making billions of dollars off of their Instagram accounts. Those people ain't never taken a bump. Not in WWE where they, you cannot have any third-party revenue streams. So all those kind of things to me just come across as a marketing tool. And there is this kind of personification that they are we're revamping our developments. We're going to get – you go up to a college football player and you say, well, you're probably not going to make the NFL. Why not try WWE? Like as if that hasn't been a ploy to recruit wrestlers since Gus Sonnenberg was wrestling in Boston in the 1920s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so like Nick responds like that and just – when people ask him questions about the quality of the product or creative aspects of the product, it's just a waste of time because that's not his department. That's Vince's job. And Nick's not going to say anything bad about Vince – so he's just going to kind of blandly say like, oh, yeah, things are going great. You know, we're doing this and we're doing that. Um, but you're not going to get anything really out of it. And I think a lot of people struggle kind of with separating like what Nikon's role is in the company, which is to make deals with big corporate entities and to negotiate with Fox and to negotiate with NBCU and Peacock and advertisers and these kind of things. And he's not the person who's looking at the raw script and saying, this is crap. we got to change this. Mm-hmm. Um I guess what you're kind of alluding to, Brandon, is that potentially Nikon could be part of something that leads to a transition away from Vince McMahon's role as the head of creative in the company, perhaps before Vince McMahon like dies, which is what how most people assume Vince will stop being the creative head of WWE's company. And that Nick is a savvy enough guy, and perhaps he's charming enough to convince, whether it's Vince, whether it's Vince's immediate family, whether it's other stockholders or anything like that, that this thing could take off even more if we got maybe a little bit more appropriate creative control. Because but that's if, a much if, bigger if I question. Was, if I was a W investor, which I'm not, and I have never been, this company is not realizing it's full value. Yes, it's breaking financial records. Broke its financial records last year. Won't break its financial records again this year and probably the year after that. But this company is 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 valued at, first of all, it's, it's valued at about 12 times its forward-looking OEBDA which is a lower multiple than other peer companies are. This is something I tweeted about a few days ago, um, partly because of the carny perception of pro wrestling, which I think Vince McMahon is largely responsible for and largely responsible for to this day for upholding and, and you know keeping that perception in the minds of the public. But also, as we said a number of times already in the last hour and a half, Vince, Vince's creative has turned off a significant portion of fans who would spend their their money and would spend their time on WWE, but the product just isn't good. And I think the product just isn't good in a way that uh you know if you if you changed it, you wouldn't turn off the fans that you currently have. I don't buy this idea that you just have yeah, there's just these these two groups of people that you can't possibly simultaneously satisfy. I think the captive audience that they have now is less discerning than the cat than the than the former captive audience that they've run off. But anyway, um this company's not realizing its full value. Uh, the billion-dollar deals that they make could be $2 billion deals. You know, The 2 million viewers that they have, it could be 3 million viewers. But they're putting on a product that's for one person, not for their audience. They're putting on a product that's for their CEO, head of creative, the person who has uh, 
the, the controlling preferred class of shares uh, and he controls this company. And that's, you know, unless somebody does something, I don't know, it would be extremely difficult to do it, but maybe Nick Khan, as, as you're alluding to, Jesse, maybe Nick Khan is somebody who could, uh, in the interest of investors and in the interest of the company, uh, get somebody else into, into the head of creative. Although there and are other, other alternatives like Bruce Pritchard that I don't think would do a significantly better job, but, but there's somebody, maybe, maybe Paul Levesque couldn't do worse. Correct. And that would be the question that I would ask Vince were to be Vince were to drop dead or to be ousted by from power, or he would have some sort of accident that would prevent him from in the being in the current role he's in now. Mm-hmm. Who is the person that would step into that role and would they do a good job? And the massive power vacuum that Vince would be leaving, the cult of personality of Vince. What would the, I think the, I think that like personally, I think the company would be incredibly chaotic post Vince. It would be like uh, a country where the dictator dies. <laughs> and now all of the people who were afraid, the only thing that was keeping the country kind of together was fear of the dictator. Yeah. And now that that's gone, all of the knives are going to be out and the Bruce Pritchard and Kevin Dunn and Paul Heyman and Paul Levesque and all of these people will be trying to convince themselves and try to, and try to get that kind of power within the company to become the new Vince. Yeah. And I don't know how much of an overarching philosophy Vince has over his booking in general. Um, I think it's been diminished over the years as he has gotten older, but I am really interested in knowing like, what the picture, I think WWE is only going to get more chaotic. The booking going to become more scattershot, the vision becoming less clear um, as Vince gets older. And then when Vince leaves, like someone's going to come in and be able to figure out exactly what the company needs to do. I think, I mean, this is kind of, I don't want to get too off topic because we're running kind of late anyway, but the, I think there's a huge process of rebuilding the trust in fan bases that has been burned over the last few years. Yeah. I think that's going to take a lot of time to build up. I know as a fan that's been kind of turned off over the last several years, you know, I'm, it's going to take a long time for me to really trust that WWE is going to be booking an entertaining product and they're going, it's worth my time to emotionally invest in any of their characters because yeah. it's not at the, at, in this current state. And, 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 and just, I think, to, just to kind of level set, because I can, I can hear like a, a listener in my head saying, this is never going to happen. Vince is never going to relinquish power. And I, I agree. Uh, Vince's life is controlling this company and having a bunch of people around him, you know, aiding him. Um, his life is, is running this company and being the head of creative and whatever it is that he does day to day. And I don't see him ever voluntarily relinquishing that, um, to be clear. I, I think you would agree to that, Jesse. Um, uh, so I think, you know, it's it's not that it's going to happen, but it's clearly something in the interest of of shareholders that should happen but any other thoughts uh no the only thought i want to add which i kind of already alluded to was when nick was talking about like talent development in the revamp of nxt and kind of like how because i think you know bellany asked a pretty good question which was you know a lot of your key talent is getting older how are you going to create new stars and as much as I enjoyed watching Stone Cold Steve Austin have one more wrestling match and kind of be super over in this walk and brawl kind of match he had with Kevin Owens, yes. it was hard to watch it without also acknowledging that the reason that this match is happening is because WWE does not have the faith in its current roster to just to have anything that justifies the main event of at least two, one night of WrestleMania. Right. And so we need to bring Steve Austin out of 
retirement and we need to pay him probably a lot of money in what amounted to a 30 minute commercial for his IPA beer. Yes. And, uh, at, at age 57, you know at age yeah. 57, somebody's probably not going to have many, if any matches in the future for WWE. Right. Um, and so it's hard to think like, okay, what, how are you going to create new stars? And WWE's track record is poor. The NXT track record is, is poor. The performance center's track record is poor. And Nick does, he, you know, he talks about, oh, we're going to get all these good athletes to, to come in to WWE and we're going to teach them to be stars. And he said something really interesting. And you mentioned that, like, he knows more about the product than Barrios, which is true. But he talks about how, you know, in, in act, in, you know, our biggest personalities, Steve Austin, The Rock, John Cena, Roman Reigns, those are all just extensions of their real life. It's their real personality turned up to 11, you know, that line. And then he also says that kind of in the same breath as he talks about the new NXT. And it's like, well, the new NXT, everyone is based on some sort of stereotype character, often uh, in a lot of cases, an ethnic stereotype that are probably nothing like their real personalities. I do not believe Tony D'Angelo is a real mobster. Uh, I don't believe that, you know, Sarai is a schoolgirl. I don't believe that, um, Tiffany Stratton is like a, like a preppy rich girl. Uh, like that's obsessed with her like, uh, daddy's girl. Like all of these wacky personalities that are apparently building the new generation of wrestlers are seem very distant from the, uh, the conversation about how we can't give these guys wacky characters because they got to be themselves. And it seems like totally at a, uh, um, contradiction between the two ideas right um well we've been going for we're, we're pushing two hours here on on the live stream so i think we'll uh we'll wrap it up i do have one other slide just to note that ring of honor supercard of honor the first show under tony khan uh, according to WrestleTix, did do uh just under two thousand, according to WrestleTix. i believe tony khan is claimed 2000 or over 2000 1978 is what WrestleTix has reported as its as its final count so that's all i have as as by the way this was ring of honor super card of honor was airing live at the same time that aw rampage was airing in taped form on tnt at the same time that the hall of fame was airing live on on peacock at the same time that Impact's Multiverse of Matches was airing on Fight TV. So for for the for the four major promotions, I would say the top four major promotions in the United States, all streaming airing something live at 10 p.m. Eastern this Friday night. Um, but that's all I have really. Uh you wanna plug anything, Jesse? I just tell people to follow my Twitter account because that's what they'll find out what I've been up to. Um right for wrestling.com, right for voiceofwrestling.com. Uh, co-host of the Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast with uh, Jason Unpresser, who yes, who does stuff who for us here for for WrestleNomics. Yes, WrestleNomics. Shout out to Jason. He just got yes. a pretty cool new job. So really, um, that comes out bi-weekly. It's right on YouTube. Um, kind of just take one topic and talk about something for 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 two hours or so. Um, but that's yeah. No, I just tell my Twitter handle is right below my name. I just tell people to follow at Jesse Collings um, to just. That's how you'll find my work, but I uh, appreciate being asked filling in for, for Chris, uh, as he is, he's making it big at WrestleMania weekend. So, uh, yes, Chris Gullo was sent with my, my handheld recorder. He may or may not be, uh, getting interviews right now. Maybe, I don't know. Um, 
we'll see we'll see what he comes home with uh but he's he's down there doing a number of shows this weekend but I, like i said earlier i think he is attending wrestlemania um for WrestleNomics, you can hit the thumbs up share subscribe on the youtube channel if you're watching on youtube right now uh we have a patreon of course you can get my tv ratings reports that come out nearly every day patreon.com slash wrestlenomics you also also get access to the wrestlenomics viewership spreadsheet with all the tv ratings uh i've also been reporting quarter hours lately for w and aew this is the only place that's uh, originally reporting the w quarter hours at this point um at patreon.com slash wrestlenomics and i think that's it thanks to post wrestling for being our media distribution partner God, we love our partners. I, I did notice, notice that somebody did ask in the chat um, about the W Business Partner Summit, the real WrestleMania main event to me. Uh, I heard it was a shorter uh, event this year. I don't know if video will be appearing on the corporate website, but I will be checking. Um, we, but we may never actually see video from it, unfortunately. Uh, but we'll see. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening and tuning in, watching on YouTube, listening in your pod- podcast app. Uh, I will be back on Thursday with live TV ratings talk. So thanks. Thanks to Jesse for joining us. Talk to you next time. Bye.